Well, good morning. So we continue to behold our holy God. If you turn your Bible to John 3, we'll be looking at verses 31 to 36. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for leading us in worship, choir, orchestra, remarkably gifted. There's a lot of gifted musicians in the world, but to be using them for the glory of God is something uniquely beautiful. And so thank you for using your gifts. You put a lot of time in, and it bears fruit on on Sunday for all of us. I want to thank everyone that was involved in the Beast Feast Friday night. We had a lot of people serving, uh, men and women, young men and young women, serving uh, to pull this off. Thank you, Cliff, for organizing that. It was so well done. Yes. And many of you bought, uh, brought with you um, men who need to hear the gospel, need to be challenged in the things of God. So we are very grateful you brought them. I think we must have had some 400 men here on, on Friday night, and, and it was a, a very special night. That's right. That's right. Well, if you would, we're going to be looking at verses 31 to 36, but to get at the heart of these words of this passage, look at me in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, note the synonym, belief, obedience, it's not just a mere intellectual assent, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we continue in worship through the preaching of the word, as we just sang, that we would behold you in the Son of God by the Spirit of God. That's what we need more than anything else this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Joshua Bell began taking violin lessons at the age of four after his mom observed he had stretched rubber bands across the handles of his dresser drawer to pluck out music as he heard her play the piano, age four. At 14, he appeared as a soloist with the Philadelphia Orchestra. By 17, he was playing Carnegie Hall. Today, he's considered one of the greatest violinists, most famous violinists in the world. Now, given his growing fame a few years ago, the Washington Post organized an experiment And in this experiment, during morning rush hour traffic, Bell stood incognito at the entrance of the busiest train station in Washington, D.C. And so during this rush hour, he stood there 
and he played this brilliant classical piece on his violin for 45 minutes. Now, this was a great contrast to the various halls he had been selling out throughout the world for some time. In fact, three days earlier, in Boston, people, fans, paid a minimum of $100 to, to watch him play. But at that train station, he was playing his Stradivarius violin that was made in 1713 and worth $14 million. He only paid $4 million for it. <laughs> and 1,097 people passed him by in those 49 or 45 minutes as he played that Stradivarius and only seven stopped to listen and only one recognized him. During that 45-minute period, he collected $32.17. 20 from the person who recognized him. Here's the point. Few recognized the immense value on display before their very eyes and before their very ears. Well, we see this again in our text today. As we saw last week, John the Baptist followers have that same issue, same problem with regard to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, we saw last week in chapter 3, verse 26, they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan... To whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. And because they did not see, they did not perceive, they did not behold the immense value of the Son of God, he was not ruling their hearts. Jealousy and coveting and envy began to rear its ugly head. They do not have eyes to See, And the stakes are infinitely higher than failing to see and behold a world-class violinist. And that is what John the Baptist is setting out to do in his final words in this gospel. He wants his followers to see the value, the glory of the Son of God. We saw last week that he told them, I'm just a, a forerunner of this Christ. I'm just the best man. He is the bridegroom. As a result, just being the bridegroom's best man, best man, or friend, uh, he was just the witness to the light, as we saw in John chapter 1. Or as we'll see in John chapter 5, he is the burning and shining lamp that has done its work. And so at this point, he must decrease and the Son of God must increase. Now, we saw that the most specific meaning to that verse, verse 30, is that now the, the time of the Old Covenant era has passed. John the Baptist is the final prophet of the Old Covenant era. 
And now the new covenant era is coming in the Son of God. But we also saw that this verse, verse 30, has much application for us as well. One of our biggest problems in life is that we're too big. We're too prideful. We're too exalted. And so we must decrease and he must increase in our lives. And that's the purpose of this passage. The purpose of this passage is that we, as we just sang, would behold him. And that he would be increased in our lives. And the first thing we see is that one of the reasons he must be increased is he is above all. He is exalted and above all. All created things. Look with me in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now I want you to note, it's likely in your translation, whatever you have, there is quotation marks at the end of verse 30. And then you don't have quotation marks in verse 31. Well, that means that the translators, and remember the original language did not have quotation marks, so the translators of your Bible believe that John the Baptist's words are over in verse 30. I tend to think that he is continuing what he said in verse 30. It really doesn't matter uh, for whether it's John the Baptist speaking or John the Evangelist writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, it comes to us as an inerrant and infallible word. But what verses 31 to 36 is telling us is why John the Baptist and all of us, for that matter, must decrease and the Son of God must increase. Now notice he says that this one who has come is above all. He's of the earth, belongs to the earth. Who's he referring to here? Well, he's referring to himself. I believe this is John the Baptist speaking. Or if it's John the Evangelist speaking, he's speaking about John the Baptist. In other words, John the Baptist, like the rest of humanity, is born in a natural way through the flesh, not the Son of God. And I think that John the Baptist is saying here that he is speaking here of his finitude. He is a finite person like all of us. But I think it's also speaking of his fallibility, unlike the Son of God. In fact, here's how Paul explains that in 1 Corinthians 15 with very similar language. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the first man was from the earth. Now, who is the first man? Adam. You're going to have a hard time interpreting the New Testament if you don't believe in a historical Adam. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Paul sees essentially two men in all of history. Because there's two men that represent all of history and all the people in history. You have the man of dust, the man of heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. Who are those of the dust? All of us. We're all in that same category and classification. And as the man of heaven, 
so also are those who are of heaven, those who are born again, those who are in the man of heaven by faith. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, in Christ, the man of heaven, we see all that Adam, the man of dust, was intended to be, but never was. And all that we are not, but which we will become, right? In Jesus. So essentially, there are two categories of people. Those in the man of dust, represented by the man of dust, that's all of us, and those who are of the man of heaven, the one who represents them by faith. One is earthly, one is of heaven. Now, as great as John the Baptist was, and here's what Jesus says about John the Baptist, among those born of woman, Luke 7, none is greater than, than John. He was the greatest sinner who ever lived, the greatest man who ever lived. Yet still, he was of Adam's race. He was a man of dust. But Jesus is the man of heaven. Only he can save the man of dust. So John the Baptist is reminding us, here's why I must decrease and he must increase. I'm a man of dust. He is the man of heaven. As a result, though John the Baptist speaks the word of God, and when he spoke under the inspiration of the Spirit, it was inerrant, it was infallible, it was authoritative, but because of his finiteness, he was finite, when he called them to repent, and when he called them to behold the Lamb of God, he wasn't the Lamb of God, and so he could not deliver them from their bondage. John is saying Jesus is infinitely different. He is the man of heaven. John the Baptist was dependent on divine revelation. Son of God has infinite knowledge of God and his nature and counsels because he is God of very God. William Barclay says it this way. If we want information, we have to go to the person who possesses that information. If we want information about a family, we'll get it firsthand from a member of that family. If we want information about a town, we'll get it firsthand from someone who comes from that town. So then, if we want information about God, we will only get it from the Son of God. His authority was not a derived authority. It was inherent. He was the author of authority. And this was something the people were starting to see. They were starting to behold that. That's why the crowds were growing around Jesus. In fact, it was around this very time that Jesus preached that most famous of sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of this sermon, here's what Matthew tells us in Matthew 7. Crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. And so when the word of Christ came, they recognized this word had authority. And that's why it's intentional in verse 32. Notice in verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. 
notice, it's not that he bore witness. He bears witness. It's present tense. In other words, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he speaks even now through his Spirit-inspired word. That's why it's dangerous to come to church if you're not going to do business with God in repentance and faith. Because his word, it's not my word, but when the word is accurately expounded, his word goes forth in authority, and you cannot remain the same. If you hear that word and reject it, if you refuse it, if you're indifferent to it, if you're bored to it, it has the effect of hardening you as a consequence, as a discipline on your unbelief and indifference. You must respond to it in repentance and faith. That's why this word is so important. Indeed, that makes sense of Jesus' words to Pontius Pilate at his trial when he says this, for this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come into this world to bear witness of the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. How do you know if you're a believer today? Jesus says you listen to his voice. And it's not that still, small uh, word that you sense in your spirit as much as it's the word of God expounded to you. And yet it's clear most of John the Baptist's believe, uh, followers as of yet are not receiving this word. Notice in the second part of verse uh, 32. He bears witness to what he's seen and heard and yet no one Receives this testimony. Now, he's not saying that no one in the world receives it. He's speaking about his followers that are presently following him and do not perceive the value and the glory of the Son of God. He is rebuking them in a very sen in real sense. And yet we know the testimony of a 2,000-year-old church is that many would. Many would come to believe there's some of you here today that have not yet believed. And, there, and there's a reason you're here. You're not here by accident. You're here by the providence of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is pursuing you. And you will hear his voice. You have been appointed to hear his voice. The voice that reveals his plan for you and salvation for you. Notice in verse 33, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. And so by receiving, by accepting Jesus' testimony, the believer has certified that God is truthful. To believe the Son is to believe God the Father. Not that just God, Jesus is truthful, but God the Father is, is truthful. Jesus so completely says and does all that God says and does that to believe Jesus is to believe God. Conversely, not to believe in Jesus is to call God a liar. Why? Verse 34. For he whom God has sent, and that is the Lord Jesus, 
utters the words of God. For he gives his spirit without measure. So in the Old Testament, God would uh, speak to his people through anointed messengers. There were times he even took a false prophet like a, a Balaam. And he would anoint Balaam with the Spirit of God to speak the Word of God. And so each person that received the Spirit, who was anointed with the Spirit in the Old Testament, was granted a measure of the Holy Spirit to complete the appointed task given to them. Not so with Jesus. Notice it says God gives him the Spirit without measure enabling him as the god man to live to act in obedience to the father as our revealer and as our redeemer but the reason the son of god can receive the spirit without measure is because the son of god is god himself god communicates and bestows his spirit on the Son infinitely. On, only an infinite being could receive the infinite Spirit without measure, in fullness. As much as the Spirit is, and He is infinite, the Son has. That's what John is saying here. And hence, that brings us to the last part of this passage, the heart of the passage. Because Jesus is the Son of God, because Jesus has the Spirit without measure... Because he is the heavenly one, Jesus, being above all, has all authority. All authority in the world. He has all the authority for every tribe and tongue, for every country, for every people group, every individual who's ever lived. Jesus has all authority. Look at me in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, I can't help but be reminded of that song we sang as children. He's got the whole world in his hands. Adam, come up here. I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's got the, I think, itty-bitty babies in his hands. He's got you and me, brother. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. And it didn't dawn on me how profound that song was until I started studying this passage. It is profoundly theological. Why do I say that? To have something in your hand put there by God means you are the ruler of that which is in your hands. God the Father has put all things into the hands of of the Son of God. He is the ruler. And it's because of God's Father's, the Father's love for the Son. Indeed, the Father's love for the Son is a massive theme in John's Gospel. Let's just sit on that a moment, ponder that a moment. So, for instance, in John 17, the Father gives glory to the Son because He loved Him before the foundation of the world. And so He, he sheds the, the the light on the Son. He is, he is the one who's received the glory because of his love for the, from the Father. John 10, 17, the Father loves the Son 
Because he lays down his life to take it up again. The Son of God willingly came and laid down his life. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And the Father loves the Son for that. In John 17, 26, the Father's love for the Son is the pattern, get this, of the Father's love for you as a believer. As he loves the Son, he loves you. Now, if you really believe that, you would never be anxious again. If you really believe that with a perfect faith, you would never be discouraged again. You would never be fearful again. But listen to what it says in John 17. He says, I made known to them your name, Jesus says to the Father, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them. The very love that you have shown me for all eternity, you now are showing to your children, to those who trust and believe in you. And this love is also the pattern for Jesus' love for every believer. John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. So the one in whom the Father has put all things in his hands loves you. The one who is ruling, the one who is controlling all things loves you as the Father has loved him. That is so deeply encouraging and comforting. Our problem is we believe that, but we're like the man in Mark 9. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. May this word help your unbelief. It's a beautiful passage. And here, the Father's love for the Son is the reason he has placed all things into his hand. In fact, John also gives us a whole lot of information of what that means putting things into the hands of Jesus. So for instance, in John uh, chapter 5, Jesus is the one who's going to be given the responsibility for judgment in the last day. Now that's important because if you reject the Son in the last day, the day of judgment, it's going to come back at you. He will be the judge in that day. John chapter 5, listen to this. He has given him authority to execute judgment. Because he's the son of man. And then, God putting all things into his hand means that he has authority over all people and eternal life to those who believe. Notice John 17, you have given him, Jesus, authority over all flesh to give eternal life. So Jesus is the only one who has the authority to give eternal life. Oftentimes I'll hear somebody say, you, you believe Jesus is the only way. You're narrow-minded. Well, that's not being narrow-minded, but all of us recognize truth is narrow. Jesus is the only one who has been given authority over eternal life. And hence, verse 36, that brings us to one of the most important verses in John. Maybe one of the most neglected, but one of the most important. We can't ponder verse 36 too, too much. Whoever believes in the Son, I would hope you would memorize this verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now, I would venture to say virtually every hand would be raised if I asked you if you believed in the Son. We go out on Thursday nights and it, it, it is 99 out of 100 
kids at Tumor's Corner on Thursday nights that tell me they believe in the sun. Uh, Auburn has a high percentage of kids with a religious background. But notice the second part of this verse. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life. I thought we're not saved by works. We're not. But obedience is the fruit of saving faith. Obedience is the apple on the apple tree. If there's no apples, you can't be sure it's an apple tree. And so belief, saving belief is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Whoever does not obey the Son, whoever does not live under the Lordship of Christ, whoever has this area of their life that they refuse to repent of, they refuse to submit to the Son, you don't have assurance you have saving faith. Whoever does not obey the Son, get this, shall not see life. Now, life there is eternal life. Now, that's quantitative for sure, but it's qualitative. It's abundant life. One of the reasons we sin is that we do not believe that God in Jesus offers us abundant life. And so we go pursuing abundant life apart from God. It's the height of foolishness. Abundant life's source is found in the Son of God. The sun shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So this is the climax of the chapter. In the light of the Father's great love for the Son and his having placed everything in his hands, there are two implications that John gives us here in verse 36. First of all, because the Father loves the Son Everyone who believes in the Son in whom he loves receives eternal life. The greatest thing you can do to honor a parent is to honor their children. We all know that. The greatest way we can honor the Father is to believe in and obey his Son in whom he loves. Jesus is the object of saving faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish. To believe the son is to believe the father and to love the father. Jesus will say later in John, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me will not be condemned. He will have eternal life. He's crossed over from death to life. And note this has eternal life. It's not something we have to wait for when we die. You have it now in Jesus. The moment you trust in Jesus, the moment you commit your life to Jesus, that abundant life, that eternal life, begins to work in your brokenness. Secondly, whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. The worst thing we can do against God the Father is to reject the Son in whom he loves. And those who do so forfeit life and are exposed instead 
to the wrath of God. That's hard language, but it's true. Now, if it said uh, the criminals are the ones who experience the wrath of God, the child abusers, those who abuse children and harm children, we'd have no problem with that. Yeah, God's wrath belongs on those people. And that's true. But what the text is telling us is that it's true of every single person who does not believe in the Son. Because the truth is, apart from Christ, apart from grace, we are more like Hitler than we are Jesus. So God's wrath rests. In other words, right now, if you're not, apart from Jesus, God's wrath is resting on you. Do you want to go through life with God's wrath resting on you? You have no promise of fatherly care there. Any care you receive from him is a common grace. You have to trust in Jesus to rest in the promises of God's care. Now, this is the only place in John's gospel that the word wrath is used. That's the only place you need, though. But that word wrath is found throughout the New Testament. We don't have time to go into all the places, but Paul will tell you, apart from Christ, you are an object of God's wrath. He will tell you in Romans 1 that the wrath of God has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Charles Spurgeon says that many reject the teaching of God's wrath. But as for me, I have never been able to believe in a little hell because I cannot find in the Bible any trace of a little heaven, a little savior, a little sin, or a little God. I believe in drawing my theology to scale. You see what he's saying? God is big. Our theology should be big. God's saving grace is big. Our theology of saving grace is big. God's wrath is big. And our theology of wrath should be proportionate to the reality. See, most failed to see the immense value of Joshua Bell's talent. That's not a tragedy, though. But it's an eternal tragedy if you fail to see this glory and this value of the Son. And that's why we cannot make too much of Jesus. It's impossible to make too much of him. For you who believe in Jesus, this is a promise, he has secured your life. He has secured your eternal life. He has secured present abundant life. He has delivered you from the wrath of God. And he did it by laying down his life as your substitute. Today, April the 3rd, 1968, as Adam brought out, I don't, I'm not 64, I may look 64, but I am 54. And today, I was born in 1968, 54 years ago. On that same day, Martin Luther King Jr., Flew to Memphis, Tennessee. There was a sanitation worker strike. The African Americans were being mistreated. They, they were being paid less than the white workers. They were receiving less benefits than the white workers. 
uh, it was true injustice. So he flew in. Bomb threats had delayed his plane. But he got in there, and, and that night there were storms raging in Memphis. Every, there were tornado threats. He was sick. He was in his motel, the Rain Motel, and he called Ralph Abernathy, his best friend, his second-hand guy, and he said, I, I can't speak to the church tonight. There was a church filled with about 2,500 people. He said, I can't come. Ralph Abernathy says, oh, oh, you're coming. They didn't come here to hear me. They, they came here to hear you. So King put on his, his suit, and he went over to this church, and here were the final words of his message that night that indicated he knew that soon he would be put to death. He would be assassinated. I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go to the mountain, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That was spoken about five hours after I was born. The next day, less than 24 hours later, he steps outside of his hotel room. He's about to go to dinner with his colleagues. And at 6.05 p.m., he was assassinated. He was shot to death. And even though his death would have a significant impact on the civil rights movement, if King had known he was about to be assassinated, if he had known he was about to be shot on that balcony, he would have stayed in his room, as you and I would have as well. But then there's Jesus. Not only did he see it coming, it's why he came. He wasn't assassinated. He didn't die as a martyr. In fact, five times in John 10, 11 to 18, he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And on the cross, in Jesus, we see, we see sin fully punished. And fully pardoned for everyone who believes in the Son. The demands of God's law have been met in the perfect obedience of Jesus. And the penalty of sin has been paid in the sin-bearing death of Jesus for those of us who believe. Do you behold his infinite and immense value this morning? That's the purpose of this passage. No commands, but a Christ to behold. That's a word for every believer, but it's also a word for every unbeliever here. As Adam comes forward, musicians, <clears throat> we're going to have 
pastors at the end of this aisle, each aisle. Do you see the promise? The promise is this. If you believe in the Son, if you commit your life to the Son, you'll have eternal life. What did the Son do? He fulfilled all righteousness because you don't. And then he died a sinner's death on the cross. He wasn't a sinner, but our sin was imputed to him. And God's righteous wrath was poured out on the Son of God. So it doesn't have to be poured out on you. And then he was raised. Reversing the verdict on every believing sinner. That's a promise if you will trust in the Son. We'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to pray with you as we stand and as we sing. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.